To get to the truth of the matter about Chinese aggression against Taiwan, we have with us two experts at CSIS who know the most about this, Jude Blanchett, who is our Freeman Chair in China Studies, and Gerard DePippo, who is a senior fellow in our economics program. They both just co-authored a study called Sunk Costs, the Difficulty of Using Sanctions to Deter China in a Taiwan Crisis. Jude, I want to ask you first to just set the stage. What is the background behind why you did this report. What are you thinking about when you're thinking about a potential Taiwan crisis and Chinese aggression? I think the proximate background is we saw February of last year, Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine. And one of the surprising dynamics at play there is that quickly evolved from a military conflict to really an economic financial energy one, where we saw sanctions levied and very aggressive sanctions levied by the United States, along with a swath of allies and partners on the Russian economy. We saw pressure on companies to be extricating themselves from the Russian market. So this, you know, down to McDonald's, financial firms, everyone quickly scrambled to disentangle themselves from Russia. And it provoked a number of questions. One is, what effect did those sanctions have on shaping Putin's calculus after an invasion? Could they have been used earlier to deter Putin from taking those actions? And I think for the sake of our conversation today, what were the lessons learned for how we might deter China over a possible attack, invasion, or even just using more coercion on Taiwan. So it's within that context that Jordan and I started to think about what do we learn from Russia and where is China different? So Gerard, I want to go to you. We're actually thinking about, in a policy sense, already deterring China before they even do anything. What does that look like? Well, I mean, almost by definition, you have to think early if you're trying to deter I think the broad conversation in D.C. At, in the Pentagon and elsewhere is how do you prevent China from taking unilateral aggressive actions, change the status quo with Taiwan? Part of that, as you were saying, is the economic aspect. In the U.S., for the last 25, 30 years, we've been increasingly aggressive with the use of financial sanctions or also export controls and other types of sanctions. And so it's only natural, given the sort of muscle memory and, and training we've gotten from using sanctions, also in the Russia context, that we would think, OK, how do you use sanctions to solve this problem in, in deterring China? Well, some have said that sanctions aren't that effective. How useful are sanctions? It depends on what your goal is. So the two fundamental goals, and this applies both to Russia in the real world and maybe potentially to scenarios over Taiwan, uh, the first objective would be deterrence, right? So trying to prevent the bad thing that you don't want to happen. How do you prevent that from happening? The second is barring that if the bad thing does happen, you use sanctions and other economic tools to degrade the adversary, let's call it. But in this case, what we're talking about is just deterrence. We're not talking about how do you destroy the Chinese economy, just trying to say, how do you prevent the bad thing from happening? Are they useful for deterrence? In the case of Russia, well, obviously they failed in the sense that Putin still launches full-scale invasion. Our president was quite explicit about the types of sanctions we would be using. We ended up using stronger sanctions than we actually had threatened, in part because I think the Europeans were not fully on board until after they realized, oh, the intelligence was real and the invasion was actually going to happen. But even then, I'm actually skeptical that retrospectively, Putin could have been deterred with sanctions alone. And the main reason there is that he was expecting the military operations against Ukraine to be easy and fairly quick, right? And so in that world, which we say in the piece, 
if you think, look, you know, Russia is going to seize Kiev in five days and eventually you're going to get the Ukrainians to surrender, is it really plausible that the West is going to impose aggressive and escalating sanctions to counter a fait accompli? In other words, if the war is already lost, what's the point? And so there's a parallel between Russia and China. But I think in the Russia case, a, a really important variable was Putin's expectations of the ease of the conflict itself. And obviously he was wrong about that. Well, I want to ask, guys, we hear deterrence thrown around a lot in Washington. What is deterrence in the sense that we mean here? And what do we know about it? So fundamentally, deterrence is about shaping the calculations, decision making of an opponent or a rival. So it's a purely psychological exercise. It's not a sort of you accumulate enough widgets, defensive widgets or offensive widgets, and there's some sort of mathematical deterrent effect. It's really about perceptions. And this is what makes it quite difficult. And we can think about this by just mirroring what shapes political calculations in the United States at a, at a political level, right? It is policymakers, elected officials, national defense officials making subjective calculations about the opponent's ability to inflict cost, to impose constraints. This is very much a human enterprise. And so to get back to Gerard's comment just now in thinking about Vladimir Putin, you could imagine a world in which the United States in concert with allies and partners three or four months before the actual invasion, when we started to have good intelligence that Putin was considering an attack, putting on the table we're going to levy sanctions of X magnitude in a way that could have potentially caused Vladimir Putin to say, OK, the cost is too great. But if we think about how the sanctions actually came, they came after the conflict and they were surprising in their magnitude, even to many of us observers. So you can see how we let some deterrent wind slip from our sail. If we had signaled credibly that we were going to levy sanctions of that magnitude three months earlier, it might have had an effect. But of course, it would have been very difficult for us before Putin invades to get the EU to publicly commit to those sanctions because Putin hadn't invaded yet. And as we know, there was a lot of skepticism, even in Ukraine, about whether or not Putin was going to do it. So this is one where um, I think centering the idea that we're shaping psychological, political considerations of an opponent is where you have to begin. And so I would just leave with the thought that deterrence is not something that you can demand. It's something that you can attempt. And then you have to wait and see if what you have done, whether that's on the military front, on the economic front, on the diplomatic front, has actually, in fact, shaped the, the sort of cost calculation of, of a rival. And to add to that, when we're talking about deterrence terminology or theory, there's there are many ways of slicing it, but one way is the distinction between general deterrence and immediate deterrence. So general deterrence is basically your steady state. It's your baseline. It's what the adversary expects outside of a crisis, just kind of in general. The immediate deterrent is how are your actions affecting your adversary's thinking in the actual crisis? So it's sort of like incremental. And our bottom line here is that we think that economic sanctions in the China-Taiwan context do matter as a general deterrent. And we know that in part because there's documented literature, which Jude's program has translated, of Chinese officials talking about how do they plan for such sanctions. But the problem is once they've decided to go in any military sense, the utility of incremental or immediate sanctions probably diminishes quite a bit because they're already expecting it. Without getting too much into deterrence literature, maybe one of their distinction to put out there, because it may come back up in the rest of the conversation, is there's two broad ways we could think about deterrence. One is you basically signal that you will punish an action after the party takes it. So if you steal the cookie from my cookie jar, 
you know, I'm going to steal your BMX bike. Yeah, you're right? busted. You're busted, but I'm going to inflict some some proportionate uh, punishment on you. The other is deterrence by denial. So essentially, you thwart the ability of the rival to take the action to begin with. So I put the cookies way up high on top of the fridge so you can't reach them or I put a lock on them. In the case of our conversation on sanctions, we might think of this as sanctions by punishment would be we credibly signal to China, look, if you invade Taiwan, you're going to face significant, significant economic costs because we're going to sanction your banks, we're going to sanction companies. And there's a co-sponsored bill right now called the Stand Act, which is uh, sponsored by uh, Senator Sullivan on the Senate side and Representative Gallagher on the House side, which is essentially takes that punishment. We're going to clearly signal. The other way you could think about sanctions is we levy massive sanctions on China's financial system and companies before they take the action but because we know they are eventually going to take it and we want to basically disrupt their ability. So if we hit them hard now, if we rip them out of the US, you know, the international dollar system, if we sanction Chinese military companies or export control them such that, you know, we deny them critical inputs, that's essentially not waiting for them to do it. And it's not about punishing the action. It's about saying we're going to disrupt your ability to do it. So those two different buckets are helpful to think about of sort of punishment and denial. Okay. So when we think about China, and we think about sanctions. Let's talk about that. What would that look like? Well, there could be a whole range. I think the obvious and most immediate acting would be financial sanctions. The big targets would be going after their so-called big four banks, their major state-owned commercial banks. Or if you wanted to be really aggressive, going after the People's Bank of China, which is their central bank. Because the U.S. unilaterally basically controls most of the dollar network, we have the authority to basically cut off Chinese financial institutions from the dollar clearing, at least the offshore parts of it. And China, despite its RMB internationalization efforts, is still most reliant on the dollar for cross-border finance. They would also, I think, struggle to find alternatives. So you can imagine shifting to yen or euro, but those are also U.S. allies who they might worry about targeting them as well. So I think in a crisis, it's financial sanctions, particularly on financial institutions, that would be the fastest acting. There are other things like export controls, which we're already doing in the real world, but those take a long time to have an effect. It might even take years, depending on what you're talking about. And they also require more multilateral coordination, whereas financial sanctions, because of the dollar's role, the U.S. can act alone if necessary. Probably also important at this point to zoom out a bit and just make the comment that it really depends on what China does. So if we want to have a sort of a mature discussion on sanctions, I think we first need to ask, are we thinking about sanctions as a way to signal punishment to China. And then the important thing is the type of sanctions or punishments we levy will really depend on what actions they take. There are actions which Xi Jinping could initiate, which will clarify the situation very, very quickly. And I think bring together a coalition of countries who would feel compelled to sanction and not just sanction economically, right? There's diplomatic sanctions, financial sanctions. So we've got a whole range of tools. So in, in the more extreme version, this would be the sort of nightmare scenario where, for whatever reason, Xi Jinping feels compelled to launch a military invasion, uh, sort of a Putin 2.0, but over the Taiwan Strait. Under that scenario, as Gerard and I have written about elsewhere, I think we can guess that conversations in Washington, in Brussels, in Tokyo would galvanize pretty quickly. So you'd have the military response, which I think would be significant and immediate if it's that unilateral invasion. But in parallel to that, I think you'd see massive sanctions on whole swaths of China. And again, as a conflict continues, if we have US servicemen and women dying in combat, the conversation here will, I think, get escalatory very quickly. The challenge for us, though, is on those scenarios 
to the left of an invasion. And that, I think, is where things get very difficult if China is escalating in what we call the gray zone, so not quite an invasion, but they wouldn't call it a blockade because blockade would be technically an act of war, but something that looks like a blockade, so surrounding Taiwan with the PLA and disrupting shipping. That's where I think, as Gerard and I signal in this piece, we need to start thinking now because then the conversations in Brussels might not be so clear, right? Then folks might say, whoa, 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 whoa. Now is not the time for significant sanctions. That'll just make matters worse. And of course, unlike Russia, sanctioning China will, of any significant degree, will almost certainly mean pensions of American citizens are going to take a hit, right? Inflation is going to go up. Yeah, I mean, this is going to rock the global economy. Yeah, China's not Russia, right? So remember the supply chain disruptions and inflation we experienced during COVID times that by a factor of 10. And that's what we're going to be dealing with. But that's what makes the political discussions on this more complicated than a Russia scenario. George, so one of the things that's got to be complicated when you think about this is the role of American businesses. American business wants to do business in China, wants open markets. What's the calculus there in signaling this kind of deterrence? The problem is you have to answer that question in the context of plausible scenarios when this might happen. So in a gray zone scenario, you know, businesses are generally going to be pushing against using unilateral measures. They're going to basically want to preserve market access to China. They don't want to have capital controls imposed on them such that they can't you know, repatriate their profits. But I think the further to the right on the spectrum you get where China is actually taking actions that might be perceived as, as acts of war, that China, which we've written about in a separate piece called Pyrrhic Victory, that is a much more nationalistic and probably um, like batten down the hatches economically China. And so if you're actually talking about the extreme case, the Chinese market is probably no longer appealing and at any rate, any foreign capital is not going in and out. But the problem is, as you was already saying, is, is more the gray zone scenario where are we prepared to impose massive costs, not just in U.S. businesses, which they do have a substantial presence in China, but also U.S. consumers. I mean, China is by far the world's largest manufacturer and exporter. And basically without China, we would have essentially no electronics. Right. And so no iPhones, no laptops, none of that stuff. If you really want to go aggressive on the sanctions, that's kind of the stuff that you would be risking. Now, you could say, why don't we just go soft there and have loopholes? But then it sort of diminishes the whole point of the sanction. Yeah, it's toothless. Right. Exactly. So what is the efficacy of sanctions in uh, relation to a Chinese gray zone activity? Plausibly speaking, I don't think they would be deployed in a way that could be calibrated such that it is balancing the perceived action or severity of the Chinese action with the willingness of the U.S. or at least its allies to go along. I think it's just really, really hard in, in gray zone situations to imagine using sanctions. And also, even then, if you're saying, well, look, it's something that's ambiguous, it's not necessarily a huge deal, we want to preserve some de-escalation trajectory, then the sanctions you might be talking about are actually not that big of a deal either, in which case, does it really affect Chinese planning? Maybe not. And also, it's important to remember that the whole reason we put a set of actions in the bucket of the gray zone is they're designed to be marginally advance an actor's interests in a way that make it difficult for an opponent to respond, right? It's salami slicing. The point of salami slicing is I just cut a little bit, not enough to where it clearly escalates or makes it difficult to provoke a response by the other side. So again, that almost structurally gray zone actions are difficult to formulate the right response because they're designed to, again, just be sort of marginal nibbles at the edge. 
And I think the other thing we've noticed, even in just this conversation, is we're to some extent implicitly stating that sanctions by themselves will be limited tools when we think about it. It's not that they're irrelevant. And as Gerard has written, you know, every sanction, even if it's not efficacious in the sense of doing what you want, sanctions have effects, right? So they don't always get you the intended outcome, but they do have effects. So we're not saying these are irrelevant, but as we've tried to think through these scenarios, I think it becomes evident to us that in isolation, using sanctions and thinking you're going to fundamentally steer China one way or the other, especially about a political objective as central to China as is Taiwan, is difficult. And without giving too much detail away, Gerard and I were doing a sort of econ war game on Friday, Saturday, and that strengthened our underlying thesis that we saw when parties were trying to use simply sanctions to try to get China to move substantially away from its objectives on Taiwan, they were not particularly effective. It was really when there was a credible military capability by the United States. That's when you start to see sanctions at the margin could be used as an additional element of cost. But really, fundamentally, it comes down to the fact that China would need to understand that if they take an aggressive action on Taiwan, they're going to face a significant and swift military response. So even if you have the United States, Europe, Japan, Korea, all sanctioning, you think that's not necessarily effective? And this is all speculative. So we, you know, it's, it's hard to come to scientific conclusions when, A, we don't know the scenario, right, which I think would be really important. The way that, as we mentioned in the piece, one way you could think about the threat of sanctions as being potentially effective is if I'm Xi Jinping sitting in Beijing and I'm thinking about the cost I'm going to pay for a significant escalation on Taiwan. As George said, I might look at threats of sanctions and say, okay, team, it's now time we start thinking about how we can circumvent those. But I would also potentially be thinking about the fact that Brussels and Japan and Australia and Singapore and others are credibly threatening sanctions to be a proxy for potential military engagement by those same parties. So it's not the sanctions themselves. It's the credible signal that Singapore and Australia and Japan are willing to impose an economic cost on China would potentially indicate also a willingness to use military force in response. So in that way, I think they could be effective, but it really comes down to we need to have credible signals of credible threats of sanctions. We can't just sort of loosely go around, you know, shooting from the hip, pretending that we're going to blow up the global economy. We need to be sort of careful and targeted in how we talk about this, such that Xi Jinping thinks, gosh, Maybe the coalition who will respond to our actions is, is larger than I originally thought. I was going to say, just getting into the actual scenarios here, right? I mean, there are many potentials, but the question of what, like, what would happen if the G7 Plus imposed massive sanctions on China? I mean, yes, it would be hugely disruptive to the global economy and to the Chinese economy, but it seems unlikely to me that that would happen in a vacuum. If it's happening under a circumstance where China is taking actions against Taiwan, let's say a de facto blockade even... That action on its own is going to be so disruptive to global commerce and supply chains that it becomes its own sanctions. In other words, I mean, part of why we call this paper sunk costs is that it's like at that point in the game, so to speak, the physical disruption of Chinese actions are the sanctions. And so can you get to a world where the U.S. and its allies is considering doing massive economic measures before anything remotely kinetic has happened? And I have my doubts just politically whether that's plausible. And just put a you know point on that. When we've done previous work on this, 
when you have the first and second largest economies of the world in direct conflict, and if also the geographic territory is such that this is one of the most important trade supply chain corridors in the world, including on the Taiwan side, TSMC. So there go all of our you know, ability to run electronic devices. And then also China is still a massive global manufacturing power. And then you also have the fact that you know the United States doesn't come out of this, even if we, if we win the military conflict, you know, we've suffered extraordinary economic costs. So sanctions at that point, they can do more damage, but there's already so much catastrophic collateral damage from a conflict between these two powers that they won't have the same necessary isolated punch that we saw in the case of, of Russia. Gentlemen, a lot to think about here. Fantastic report. Great talking to you both as always. Thank you. Thank you.